Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Welcome everybody to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. This is the latest in our weekly update series. Today, I'm joined as per normal by Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Meehan, our co-host, as well as our producer, Diego Rodriguez. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the happenings and the context around that. And I'll start off um, just kind of another quick look at the uh, ICSC initiated Organized and Violent Retail Crime Summit uh, that we were hosting here at the University of Florida and with LPRC. Um, here in Gainesville in the Rights Union, um, the beautiful building where we have our annual LPRC impact conference and where we just had the Integrate uh, Summit that we've talked about for that event. Um, Very well uh, attended. The goal, again, was to get together a handful of the major U.S. retail associations uh, in the same place to discuss uh, an overarching anti-retail crime strategy, if you will, what, what could something like that look like? What are we trying to do as far as um, preventing individuals, convincing them not to harm stores and people? You know, in other words, what does deterrence and disruption look like? Uh, what is What are some good practices there? Uh, look at what are legislative priorities at the federal and the state level? Where are the gaps and opportunities? What's going on with the uh, legislation we just had last year? What's going on with the major bill in Congress going on right now? So the idea, again, was legislative priorities um, and initiatives. So we had uh, Senator Grassley of Iowa, the senior ranking uh, Senate member from the Republican Party and the Judiciary Committee, um, and uh, he zoomed into the meeting. Uh, It was fantastic. So with the top lobbyists uh, from the National Association of Chain Drug Stores, from the National Retail Federation, from RELA, the Retail Industry Leaders Association, we had in the International Council of Shopping Centers, ICSC, uh, we had pretty much a quorum. In that way, we also had uh, the retail uh, committee leader from ASIS, American Society for Industrial Security. Uh, we had the top two leaders from CLEAR, the Coalition of uh, Retail and Law Enforcement, Law Enforcement and Retail, CLEAR. Um, we had uh, senior leaders from FBI that are working the Organized Retail Crime Initiative, as well as from uh, Department of Homeland Security, DHS, from the Homeland Security Investigations, HSI. Uh, two of their, uh, including Raul, who is the overall leader. Um, and then we had uh, vice presidents or very senior representatives from uh, 12 of the major U.S. retail corporations across different types, as well as uh, just about 10, I think it was about 10 approximately other counterparts, the directors or vice presidents from uh, the major malls and retail centers across the United States, including the Mall of America. We had Brookfield Properties, Mace Rich, and and others that were uh, represented. So it was an amazing group uh, from the University of Florida. Uh, I was there as well as we had our LPRC. We had uh, four of our researchers and some of our other key team members there. So I think it was it was uh, approximately 56 uh, executives and residents and went through uh, the legislation. I, legislation, as I mentioned before, was Senator Grassley. Um, what's coming up? It's a bipartisan, bicameral initiative to do a, several key things, do some things with the law, 
uh, around organized and high impact, high rate offenders, right? A key point that we discussed at this summit was not just organized retail crime where you've got a fraudster, a booster, or in other words, a, a shoplifter, uh, fences that uh, come together in place and time and work together either uh, opportunistically or, or persistently um, that may be op operate locally or regionally or even nationally or internationally. We talked a lot about that and the opportunities there uh, with past legislation and, and pending, uh, but also individual actors, high rate offenders, high impact people that aren't part of any other group. They don't work with other people generally, um, but they create a lot of a lot of devastating loss and um, even aggression and violence. So that that's key. And we don't want to just always look at ORC uh, or incidental or instrumental violence. We want to work look at both and keenly and but we also need to look at those that are kind of in between those two and that are just very high impact offenders. Um, so we looked also at needed research and development. You know, we're a research organization. That's our lane, if you will. So what are the strategic imperatives? What are things that we need from the National Retail Security Survey? Some enhancements were discussed. Uh, the NRF now kind of um, guides that study, if you will. Uh, Dr. Corey Lowe, our senior research scientist at uh, LPRC um, operates that as working through uh, some iterative uh, adjustments and enhancements to the study, uh, a study that myself and Dr. White started, and then Dr. Hollinger came on board and he stewarded that study until his retirement from the University of Florida um, and did a super job, but there are always opportunities to get more and better information from the key leaders across the US of the region, major retail organizations and other organizations. Um, but then uh, get more information that's more usable for them now as we adjust and adapt to in the way the criminals are. So we also talked about ARCS, uh, which is also an initiative that Dr. Lowe's working on to get deeper dives from each individual retail organization down to the store level so that there additionally is a lot of granular information to be able to look regionally and even marketing uh, from a market standpoint or maybe even in a, a grouped or uh, communal retail area like a mall or co-located stores. So uh, those are needed. We also talked about the voice of the victim research that we're doing right now, uh, where we are systematically interviewing uh, people that have worked in or currently currently work in a retail environment that have personally or vicariously been victimized by aggression or violence, uh, or even just persistent ongoing theft to get an idea of how these ongoing crimes or, or spike violent crimes are affecting them. What are they exposed to? How are they responding? Have they, are they upset? Are they contemplating leaving? Have they left uh, or other things that are going on from uh, what psychological and even physical harm has resulted to them and others, their coworkers and so forth, to get an idea. The voice of the victim is not particularly well understood out there or broadcast. We hear a lot about the voice of the offender, but we want to get more out there. So by understanding overarchingly what's going on, understanding at a more granular level and understanding from the victim standpoint to people that work in or in these stores uh, all the time, that's going to help us because we identified a better way to create clearer pictures. If we don't know what's going on, and we don't know what's going on very well, then we have a problem, right? If we have a blurry x-ray, we're gonna have a hard time diagnosing and doing the right things as far as treatment. So we, we looked at what does law enforcement know? Criminal justice statistics 
through the UCR and now NIBRS. Um, mostly NIBRS has not yet been implemented across the United States or even in most states within them. Um, that provides more granular information than the UCR, more actionable. Here in Gainesville PD and University of Florida PD are using that, and we're getting ready to work with them on that. Um, but according to Dr. Lowe, to Corey's studies, he's showing that less than 50% of known offenders or offenses are reported to law enforcement. So police only know what we tell them. And uh, what we tell them is not very much because also additionally only reporting maybe less than 50% on average, some report more, some way less than that, is the retailers really don't know what's going on themselves either. They don't see most theft events, for example, um, and very few now uh, actually detain or apprehend people for theft. So what is happening is not well known, um, much less reported to police. And so the police only know so much. And that's the, the official information statistics that most people are relying on, especially the media or popular narratives. So the other part of this, though, is so working on getting better at understanding, getting better at properly recording and reporting. Uh, people might report something that, as a shoplifting, a theft, which is, in fact, uh, a uh, strong arm robbery, for example, if there's instrumental violence involved, um, threatening or pushing somebody down or something like that. So. <clears throat> or, of course, even worse, an armed robbery if there's a weapon displayed or used. So what we're trying to do is better understand what's going on. Another part of the picture, in addition to the retailers, what the retailer might know, in addition to law enforcement, what they might know, and how they're both reporting, recording and reporting, is uh, the opportunity with the mall security or the shopping center security people. They have valuable insights. How can they get better at collecting and recording that? Some are doing a super job. We saw examples of that during the summit. Um, but the police don't know, the retailers don't know what the mall people know necessarily, and vice versa. They don't know necessarily all the time what's going on the retailers because they themselves may not know. So, and then finally, we looked at third-party security officers, another group. Uh, we had some of the largest operators there, um, and there's an opportunity. Many of them are very accurately recording or moving to that point, but they're not reporting necessarily. So. Here's another piece of the puzzle, more a clearer picture, try and get some of the mud off our windshields as we move down the road here. So uh, a big part of this is just understanding and defining and uh, what's going on so that we can actually analyze and get a little more precise. So a big part of this, uh, in addition to the tactical research on how to get better, uh, a lot of discussion around fusion of information and ideas. We know that RELA, working with IBM, have an initiative. Uh, we know that there are platforms from APRIS and R and from uh, ThinkLP and others, uh, Truth. Um, we know that there are um, other opportunities to fuse information together. Um, how do we maybe pull everybody's together so that there's a clearer picture uh, of what's happening? again through NRSS and the ARC project, ARCs and uh, so on. So uh, what we did next was move on, uh, identify what some legislative uh, practices might be. Senator Grassley kind of went through how grass, grassroots works, who to contact, how to do it, what, what you might think about so you can put it in a way that's understandable and actionable, um, as well as from the lobbyist and government affairs people and the retail organizations and associations. Um, and then moving over to training, what training might be indicated for LPAP practitioners to get better at detecting and handling and reporting and all these things, what uh, 
in investigating what uh, training for security, third-party security officers, for law enforcement officers, whether they're patrol or investigations, and then, of course, prosecuting attorneys, state attorneys or uh, district attorneys, uh, solicitors. So that was uh, another part of the discussion. So amazing, amazing event. Um, hopefully this is the beginning of the beginning. Uh, we came up with next steps. Um, they want to look at uh, a research agenda and possibly getting that resource, looking at tightening up the legislative agenda, tightening up the training agenda, and tightening up the information uh, collection and sharing or fusion initiatives. So it's a super, super experience for all. Uh, we we're grateful for ICSC, uh, for Maliki and, and Tom and the crew there. They did a super job of pulling this thing together along with Kim on our team. Uh, and the rest of the LPRC team. So a shout out to them. We'll we'll move on here now. We've got a lot going on this week uh, with CBS News in the labs today, or excuse me, tomorrow. Um, major, major retailer just visited on Friday. Uh, more to come on and more retailers heading in here. And, and we're working with more and more retailers on getting the five zones of influence and the see, get, fear uh, framework in, injected and, and uh, leveraged into their organizations. I think we've now had three with uh, that many more coming up here uh, just very, very recently where we're getting online uh, and working at the LPAP annual meetings with them. They want to use these frameworks. And uh, so we're excited to, to work on that. With no further ado, let me, if I might, go over to Tony Nofrio. Tony, take it away. Thank you very much, Reed, and really great updates, especially on the legislation front. I think that's needed more than ever. I actually mentioned that a lot. And uh, buongiorno to everyone. I'm actually sitting here in Italy joining the team and recording this. But I'm going to go back to the U.S. and actually start with a brand new article that just came out of the Wall Street Journal that was titled Shoplifting Clients as In-Store Shopping Returns. And according to the article, retailers say that theft is rising as more people shop in stores, cutting profits that they were that were already under pressure, and and actually the uh, the chief executive Gene Jeanette of Macy's said we definitely had an uptake since last year, and they and he sees it as an industry-wide trend. Target said in November that it expected uh, the problem known as as shrink to reduce gross margin for the recently completed complete fiscal year by more than $600 million. And TJX and company and Macy's also called, called out higher shrink rates in their most recent analyst and earnings call. Uh, theft is growing at a faster rate than sales, said uh, Dean Rosenblum, a senior US analyst at Bernstein Research. Mr. Rosenblum said that theft is becoming big enough of a problem that's starting to affect margins, which is why retailers are now talking about it more uh, frequently. And then uh, David Johnston, the NRF Vice President of S Protection and Retail Operation, said that seven years ago, internal theft was the largest category uh, by retailers. And, uh, and again, internal theft is uh, employee theft. And now, uh, said David, it's external theft. Uh, retailers are combating the problem by adding security guards and cameras to stores, locking up goods, and making use of facial recognition software to identify repeat offenders. Uh, Mr. Gannett from uh, with Macy's is also using radio frequency identification tags to track inventory 
adding more security personnel and security high-end product for lock cables and sensors. Uh, TJX's finance chief, John Klinger, told analysts in February that an unexpected increase in strength her margin by 0.6 percentage points in the re recent quarters, and that follows higher shrink charges in the same quarter a year ago. The company said it expects shrink to remain similar to the current levels, and this was unbelievable, for the next two years. Retailers are locking up everything from shaving creams to soap, said Oni Powell, a 46-year-old office manager who lives in California, these things should be uh, quick and easy to grab and go, but now it's, you have to get an employee to actually get them for you. A month ago, New York uh, City Police asked shoppers to take off their masks before entering stores. And, and again, this came after uh, an unidentified man stole roughly $1.1 million of goods from a Queens jewelry store. Switching topics, but staying on the same uh, topic of crime, interesting news from uh, FISM TV on exactly what uh, Mayor Adams is saying in New York. Uh, New York City Mayor Adams said last week to some store customers who wear masks are more likely trying not to get caught shoplifting than shopping to spread, than stopping the spread of COVID. Mayor Adams said, let's be clear, some of these characters going into stores are wearing their masks. They're not doing because they're afraid of the pandemic. They're doing it because they're afraid of the police. We need to stop allowing them to exploit the safety of the pandemic by wearing masks and committing crimes. And this is interesting because he, the mayor was pushing heavily masks during the pandemic, is now actually pushing things like facial recognition to re uh, reduce rampant crime across the Big Apple. With the help of facial recognition software, he says, he hopes to crack down not only on shoplifting, but repeat offenders who may be linked to more serious and violent crime. So lots of news in terms of uh, shoplifting and crime, both in the Wall Street Journal and other places, and again, which validates all the great work that's being done at the Loss Prevention Research Council. And then finally, switching to a lighter note, I'm going to go to change the age who actually reminded us that there are some people who like to shop under the influence of not the influence of being hot on shopping, but under the influence of alcohol. According to new data from the Finders Consumers Confident Intact, 17% of roughly 2,100 surveyed U.S. consumers have made a purchase while under the influence of alcohol in the past 12 months, spending roughly $309 each for a total of $14 billion. The top drunk shopping categories are, I guess this is where you go when you want to shop with your drunk, shoes, clothes, accessories, and food, with 47% of the respondents saying that they shop drunk while buying these items in these categories. Other Popular categories are alcohol, cigarettes, and gambling, all tied with a participation of 34%. And the one that shocked me, 16% of the respondents actually bought a car while they were drunk. So it's a crazy world. I guess you can do a lot of different things under the influence. And with that lighter note, let me turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony, and thank you, Reed. 
Um, I hope that you're enjoying Italy and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. But just wanted to cover a couple different things. One, I want to start just talking about some news around AI and artificial intelligence. So the the Newswire is talking about ChatGPT version 4, which would be the new version of ChatGPT, which is supposed to be released sometime this week. And some kind of precursors for what it brings is uh, the ability to use um, text to video, so some really advanced uh, AI that has existed, but not necessarily existed to the cons- to greater consumer public. But this new version uh, of ChatGPT will use the same you know, large language model and generative AI features as version three or pseudo 3.5, which is probably what everybody at this point has used, which you see in the open AI chat GPT or the Bing, uh, new Bing, Bing Sydney piece, but a lot, a lot, uh, to look forward to a lot to change. Uh, so what you should see, probably the biggest kind of, uh, change will be the inter production of video, generative video AI. Uh, today, you can, with with OpenAI's engine, you can do generative image, you can do uh, full featured chat back and forth. And I think that this is important for everyone here because while some of this technology is not new, making it commercially available and consumer to the, cons- to the end user as a consumer really changes the adoption of artificial intelligence and for everybody in the security world helps kind of allow for artificial intelligence that before might be seen as creepy or scary into the modern day everyday life. Uh, There are a plethora of apps and applications that have been released in the last two to three weeks on help for writing emails, research, um, really, really uh, extremely advanced options for news reporting where you can get up-to-date information and interact with a chat engine to give you very, very accurate information. I think it's important to note that the ChatGPT 3.5 that is on the OpenAI platform has data up to 2021. Uh, The Bing, uh, which is the Microsoft piece of the of using the engine has newer data and then you know with with the reason we should expect that chat gpt4 uh, will have even more uh current data so very very exciting i also think that in the next week or so we should hear and see more about google's version of bard which is not using the chat gpt engine but a similar large language model what does this mean for everybody listening well for starters if if you were watching the news or reading tony mentioned the wall street journal article that highlighted the fact that retailers were using facial recognition and i think it's important to note it's probably the first article that i've seen where there's no mention of this type of technologies being creepy or demonstrative as a matter of fact, it, it mentions it in a more positive light. Also, in the past week, there were numerous articles, Business Insider, the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, Breaking News Network, Tech uh, Radar, just a whole 
bunch of articles about retailers deploying autonomous robots for parking lot security. And I think it's important to note that in these articles, it highlighted the fact that these robots use LIDAR rate and um, other sensors and license plate recognition and artificial intelligence. The articles in some cases were a little cheeky saying that in Philadelphia that they didn't expect the robots to make it through the week. They are there and they are observing and taking information and communicating it. Interesting point here is that it's highlighting the use cases of artificial intelligence. And I, well, I would say this is somewhat anecdotal. The more artificial intelligence is introduced to the consumer population, the more widely it will be accepted in the commercial landscape. And we can see that actually happening right now in real time where there are things that just a few months ago would be frowned upon that are now being widely accepted. It's important to note that with ChatGPT and um, and I, I can't speak about BARD yet because I haven't gotten uh, firsthand information. ChatGPT is a large language model or a generative AI model that is really predictive in, in nature. It isn't a logical model. So when you're speaking with ChatGPT, although sometimes it's eerily like a human, it really is predicting uh, what it thinks that you want to hear. It is not always accurate. Uh, it's a great source of information. And I know that I mentioned this in the last podcast and uh, the New York Times article around uh, Valentine's Day where the ChatGPT engine in the Bing Sydney format had a conversation with a, a reporter and basically said he wasn't happy in his marriage and that that the the Sydney, which is the 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 code name for Bing's, could make it happy. But if you watched uh, watched the interview, read the the article, you'd see that the series of questions were predictive in nature, which led the engine to answer the way it thought um, it should. So by no means is this perfect, but I really do think that it is changing the landscape of what we are all in today. And it will change our day-to-day -day lives. I think you will start to see, if you haven't already, using apps that use this, um, uh, these types of technologies. I absolutely love it for information gathering because I can say I want a current update on X and it'll give me a link, tell me where to go. So it's really, really exciting. Switching gears a little bit to the cybersecurity front, um, there has been a, a couple large releases of information around malware and ransomware that is uh, being hosted on Azure, on Azure and Google. I think it's important to note that Azure and Google have no necessarily um, knowledge of that this is occurring case by case, but it is in some cases posing a challenge because some of the tools that are out there uh, are not picking it up. So there's uh, in Turkey specifically, there was a phishing attack that was registered and hosted by Google and Microsoft. So when you did a little bit of research without digging completely underneath, it appeared to be legitimate and ended up being a malware piece. I think when we talk about malware and ransomware, uh, education and awareness, I really believe is the key to being safe out there, patching and updating, using multi-factor authentication, and just being smart about it. I think as we, we continue to evolve, this will continue to be a challenge for each and every one of us here. And I think that as AI evolves, we will unfortunately have to change that education awareness because some of the things that we're doing today will become 
obsolete and we'll have to continue to improve on them. A little bit more on the cybersecurity front, there was a Forbes uh, article that really highlighted a Verizon 2022 beta, uh, data beach, uh, breach investigation report, and it highlighted the the attacks on the supply chain. And so a lot of this data at this point, um, I don't want to say is old, but is from 2021. But what it highlighted is that, you know, 62% of the system's intrusions had, you know, a direct relationship to supply chain. Now we learned in COVID the risks of supply chain, and I think we're still kind of feeling what it, what, what the vulnerabilities to our supply chain is, and we were and are a global economy, and kind of the risk that's associated with cyber. And um, I think one of the things that's important here is in this study. It talks uh, heavily about supply chain. It also talks heavily about retail. And while some of this is dated, the sheer magnitude of uh, people that were impacted, 40 million customers impacted in the target breach uh, several years ago, um, what the impact was on supply chain and logistics. And what we're seeing is a continued trend around malware and attacks in these spaces. So I don't think this is going away. I don't think this is going away, period. Uh, I'm not going to say anytime soon. I actually think it will continue to evolve. And again, as technology becomes more advanced, will continue to be a challenge for each and every one of us on the call. Uh, retailers uh, are prime targets because they have a, a large amount of data that is potentially easy to monetize. So personal information, customer information. So I think it's super important to stay uh, vigilant there. Switching gears a little bit to the economy, this has been a wild week. Um, so the, you know, yesterday the, the Fed talked about uh, the inf inflation. And so while inflation dropped a, a tad, it is still 6%. Uh, over last year, so you're going from that hovering that eight to eight uh, to six uh, to six percent uh, with a target of two percent. So still a long ways to go. And the question is, what will happen? Will interest rates be raised again? Um, I think the Fed has alluded to that it will. But while this is all going on, and uh, you know, prior to the podcast starting, Tony and I were chatting about some of the banking things that are going on. We had two banks. Um, uh, basically go under in the in the last few days. One was Silicon Valley Bank. The other was Signature, Signature Bank. Um, Silicon Valley Bank was not a small bank. I think it's important to note that the size of this bank is a lot larger than I think folks really realize. Um, it was the 16th largest bank in, in North America. So I want you to think that 16 is may not sound like a lot, but it, it is a massive bank. And what occurred was essentially um, – I think it's important to note before I say what occurred is that this bank catered almost exclusively to tech startups. And in the tech sector, there's been some wild things that occurred. And if you really think about it, prior to the last six to 10 months, tech uh, companies were being infused with cash from venture capitalists. And so this this venture capitalist uh, capital uh, died out. So folks in the tech sector, both big and small, were going to the bank to get their money. Um, and it's important to note that it was their money. Uh, and you had companies like Etsy, um, two payroll companies, these massive companies that use this bank. And uh, in a 48-hour period, uh, there was $42 billion 
withdrawn from that bank. So I think it's important to note they had $45 billion in cash on hand, and it was not enough to keep up with the demand. And unfortunately, the run on the bank occurred and the bank could not pay back. And how? why does this happen? You may, may not know about this. Well, basically, banks take your money and they invest it and uh, to earn interest. That's how they make their money. This is not 2008. This is not Lehman Brothers or Washington Mutual doing bad loans. This was a bank that um, invested appropriately in in stock, in futures and bonds. And the inflation um, that occurred caused what would be a, a stable, well, a stable way to invest in the past become unstable. And, you know, there are some arguments that they could have done a better job of managing that. But the reality here is that when you look at this, this is not a mismanaged organization. This is an organization that did not anticipate the amount of withdrawals. And um, I think and I, I, it's a little bit uh, skewed, but basically they had 200 and $200 billion in change in 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 what they what they their customers held and they they had 45 billion on hand which if you're listening to you may say and that sounds crazy but it's pretty common actually 33 to 35% is what the bank is holding and the rest is in investments so um, we're seeing a, a change in kind of short term options and short term futures but this is a very volatile time uh, in the financial sector because it is the perfect storm. You have hyperinflation, you have crypto markets crashing, you have a tech sector, which was infused with literally billions and billions of dollars that that has stopped all at once. So Silicon Valley Bank did fold. The FDIC uh, did come in and they actually raised the limit, which is normally $250,000 insurance to cover uh, these companies. This is not a bailout. This is what FDIC insurance is for. Uh, banks pay into it. Uh, so this isn't taxpayer money. And there is some talk about precedents being set, but the limits on FDIC insurance are are uh, able to be changed. And that was what was, uh, happened here. And then there was another uh, bank fallout, which I think is a little different, Signature Bank, which was a, more of a regional player in uh, the New York market. But Signature Bank had a little different of a challenge. They had a lot of assets tied up in crypto, which caused them to not be able to you basically pay out what they they needed to pay out. I think it's important to note that they're two very, very different um, challenges, but they happened at the same time. So when you think of the news and what's going on, you have this this kind of hyper reaction, and that's why the government went and covered the FDIC. First Republic Bank was all over the news. First for public Republic Bank is the fourth. 15th largest bank in the nation, um, very, very close to what the what Silicon Valley's uh, bank would look like on paper. I think they had $212 billion in, uh, in assets uh, on their books, but they're a private wealth management, really high wealth individuals bank there. And there was a bit of a run on that. The difference here is that they were uh, very quickly backed by JP Morgan Chase and basically said, hey, we're going to cover this piece of it. I, I think with any time there's bank runs or anything like this occurs, emotion is really important because if everybody runs to the bank to take out their money, even the largest banks in the world would struggle because by design, they don't intend to have all of their money. So if you think of a JP Morgan Chase, which is the largest bank, I think they have about $3 trillion. Um, if 
70% of their customers went to withdraw money, there'd be a challenge because that money is by design invested in other things. So it's going to be a very volatile week in the, the next uh, few the next few days. And uh, Tony actually said, hey, I'm in Italy, I haven't seen this. But what we're seeing is in the UK, um, the Silicon Valley Bank branch in the UK was bought by HPC by, for one pound. Um, the debt for um, the bank, uh, Silicon Valley Bank in the United States, I believe was bought by Goldman Sachs. And then you're starting to see uh, emergency meetings happening in Germany and other places all over the globe to kind of prepare for the potential to occur. When these things occur, people by design go to withdraw money, go to move money to other places, which can create the domino effect. So that is why the U.S. government raised the FDIC limit for both of these banks to try to pacify some of the concerns and say, look, we're going to do the right thing. Don't worry about it. And the FDIC limits are 250000 per individual or 500000 for uh, a, 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 a couple. And that's what you are protected against if you're an FDIC and bank, uh, insured bank. It, just a kind of point of note before I go on to the next topic, if you were recall all of the cryptocurrency challenges, those are not FDIC insured. So those are like much any many other investments. So when you hear of crypto challenges, there is no government insurance on these. These are um, investment risks that occur. So wanted to switch and close out with um, kind of geopolitical, the geopolitical climate. And I happened to be in Europe um, last week and um, I know Tony's in, in Europe now and the geopolitical climate is – Challenging. Challenging is probably the best way to approach it right now. You have in the past so many months shooting down uh, spy balloons. You have a, a, a war, a conflict that's been going on for more than a year in the Ukraine. And so I wanted to talk about a couple things that occurred over the weekend that I think are important to note that could uh, could actually have um, a challenge um, for us here in the U.S., uh, especially from an economic firm because of the unstableness of the global economy. So there's been widespread civil unrest all over the world, uh, most recently in Iran, um, in Georgia, and a lot of anti-government protests. But it, while this is going on, you have a whole bunch of different things occurring. One, China has really stepped up to the plate and is trying to position themselves as a broker of peace. And so what do I mean by that? They've actually um, brokered a deal between Saudi Arabia um, and Iran in relationships, uh, which is no small feat. And then they're also uh, the Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping is meeting Zelensky this week after he meets uh, Putin. And what China is publicly saying is that they believe that they can diplomatically solve a lot of the challenges without conflict, without threats of violence, and really by encouraging commerce and encouraging trade. Uh, so it, regardless of where you sit on the fence with your belief, when you see some of these things, they're showing that there is some that there is some positive movement when they're doing this. Unfortunately, on the world stage, um, a lot of countries have to take a side, which creates a challenge. Furthermore, in in kind of the in that region where there's conflict, North Korea uh, fires submarine missiles, you know, ahead of the largest U.S. South Korea military drill in years. So we continue to posturing. Uh, in in this region, and and North Korea is right now 
um, advancing more than than other companies with their missile capabilities. They still really do not have tactical nuclear weapons. They have strategic nuclear weapons, and strategic nuclear weapons are long-range, large, um, and really designed to embody deterrence. Tactical nuclear weapons are short-range and used in conflict. So the the fear or concern in the global community is that when they do get tactical nuclear weapons, the smaller loans, that, that they would potentially be a real threat to um, South Korea, Australia, Japan. Uh, and right now, that that's a really, really big challenge. Also, in other geopolitical news, um, AUKUS, which is Australia, the UK, and the US kind of alliance, have uh, outwardly talked about submarine deals where the US and the UK are providing Australia five submarines and then um, several more throughout the all the way up to 2040, and outwardly very publicly saying they're doing this to make sure that Australia is positioned to defend itself in if there was in fact a conflict between China and Taiwan or any uh, in that region because of the proximity of Australia to it. There's no um, there's no doubt or mystery in the fact that the Chinese military and navy is extremely large, much much larger than than Australia. So these five submarines are more of a posturing and a show of of uh, strength and solidarity between the UK, Australia, and the US than actual a defense mechanism. I'm not saying that it's they're not useful. I'm just saying that this is more about posturing. Uh, the Chinese government did not respond right away, but they did respond and basically said it, it's a dangerous path um, to to take, and it's it's both um, provocative but somewhat threatening. And so when we talk about geo the geopolitical landscape, it is at this point a, a very very complex chessboard where there are a lot of activities going in the Middle East and Russia that do have long-standing impacts. And what does it mean to us on this call? Not so much the concern of World War III, but more of the concern of uncertainty in the economy and how people will react. Will they spend? Will they buy more of other things? Um, and what are the impacts on supply chain when you have these type of conflicts in bodies of water that are major, major um, thoroughfares for uh, uh, goods getting from Europe, getting from Asia to the U.S. and to other places? So definitely something to watch. Um, sorry that there's so much doom and gloom, but I, I, th I think that it, it's a, a very interesting time and it's important for everybody to be aware of that. And with that, I will turn it back over to Reed. All right. Well, thanks so much, Tom, uh, and for all you do. And thanks again, Tony, to you. Thanks also again to Wilson and thanks to Diego. And of course, thank you to each and every one of you. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.